The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Tamara Kandacker. This entire city has been annihilated. There are victims still under the rubble and some are in the sea. There are bodies buried in mass graves because the cemeteries are full. It's been just over a week since Storm Daniel hit Libya, causing catastrophic flooding. Thousands are missing, and the UN says close to 4,000 people are confirmed dead after torrential rains blasted the country's northeast and took out two dams, decimating the port city of Derna. Other groups put the death toll at well over 10,000. Cars, people, entire buildings, and neighborhoods were swept into the sea. The disasters also raised a lot of questions about whether the extreme death toll could have been avoided and what led to it. The, the quantity of rain that came down is just off the charts. That's one thing. The other problem was, of course, the infrastructure in Libya in the past 10 years you know, has had divided governments, uh, has been intermittently at war. Protests have erupted in Derna, with survivors of the disaster calling for top officials to step down, and demonstrators have burned down the mayor's house. Today, we'll be talking about the political failures behind the devastating flooding in Libya, but first we'll get a sense of what's happening on the ground. Anas Algomati is the director of Sadek Institute, a Libyan think tank, and he joins me now from Istanbul. Hi, Anas. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the destruction in the photos from Derna from last week was just unbelievable. Half a year's rainfall fell in just 24 hours. In daylight, as much as a quarter of the port city of Derna is revealed to be gone. This is a catastrophe from God. We've lost families, brothers. The figures are massive. Roads gone, entire neighborhoods gone, barely anything left standing. So what can you tell me about what we've learned since then about the damage that's been done? Well, the death toll has regretfully carried on rising in the last week. We have different numbers because there is a lot of, within the chaos of those trying to coordinate on the ground, the Libyan Red Crescent, which is doing an outstanding job, the Libyan Boy Scouts that have volunteered, volunteers from across all walks of life in East, West and South Libya, um, but also the Libyan National Army, Khalifa Haftar's own frontline workers who are also risking their lives, despite the fact that their authority is really hampering uh, not only the, the aid operation, but also the counting of numbers. So amidst the chaos, there's a little bit of... Um, authoritarian camouflage mm -hmm. and they're trying to bring down those numbers so we've heard 
that could be up to 11,200, maybe much, much more, according to estimates from people that I've spoken to, doctors on the ground, lawyers that I've spoken to, they they still believe that it could be up to 20 to 25,000, uh, mm-hmm. given the demographics of the neighborhoods that were hit. Um, the Libyan authorities themselves and the Libyan rival government in the east are now reporting a much lower figure, 3,200. Right. We'll explain sort of the the political context in a bit. But before we get to that, uh, thousands of people are still missing and workers are still looking for survivors. What can you tell me about the search at this point for for people? It's uh, there's a remarkable level of optimism, despite how bleak things are. I already lost six people. We managed to take out three and we did not find the other three people. We're searching for the bodies here. We could not find them. How difficult is this rescue operation? A lot of dead bodies are uh, are buried under almost three meters of dirt. Some bodies are buried under almost a building. So uh, it's really difficult. I mean, it's testimony to the character of the city and the city's residents that they still found survivors uh, mm-hmm. you know that have been battling against the elements without food water sanitation light barely any oxygen to breathe under the rubble but i think we're getting to this point in the search where there are now more dead bodies emerging from the sea and uh, the diving teams and the search and rescue teams that are recovering bodies from there tells you a little bit a bit more about where the operation now is in in, in the week it's very unlikely that we're going to find more survivors um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's testimony to the character of Libyans that were always viewed as being divided, but they've come together in a really beautiful moment. The international teams have been outstanding, working tirelessly day and night. Um, but, you know, it's bleak. It's really bleak. I mean, I think if we focus on the rubble and you forget the names, the families, the individuals that are behind them and underneath them, regretfully, but also those left behind. I mean, there are children that are you know, looking at the shoreline, finding artifacts of their family, finding dead bodies, unfortunately, where they used to play and where they used to swim. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's harrowing, honestly, to see. At half past two, my auntie called my mom and I could hear the little girl, my friend, crying. Then the building fell down and then the connection went and then we couldn't reach them. And that's it. Do you know much about the challenges that these search and rescue workers are are facing and what makes it difficult to find bodies and, and survivors at this point? Well, there is it's it's mainly out of coordination, which has been the major major problem here because this operation has been militarized by the Libyan National Army, which is the authority that has been in control of Dedna since 2019 when they came as the conqueror, according to Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. There was multiple human rights uh, abuses that were committed in that city, and they they have a very tight control over the way that things operate. So there's a, a lack of coordination. There's a lack of translators. Regretfully, there are Spanish teams that were without translators. There were Greek teams without translators mm-hmm. um, working well alongside Libyan teams that are finding it very challenging to to work on such a multinational level. Uh, there is red tape. An enormous amount of red tape. There are journalists that have been blocked from entering. They've had to arrive in Benghazi along with the rest of the international community. That's 300 kilometers away. 
in today's terms, given the the access problems, that's a six and a half hour drive away. You know, this this region is more like a police state than uh, an open state. There's been a lot of uh, activists and voices that are trying to film what is happening. There have been attempts to try to block them. There were activists that have been arrested. Um, so it's making it an incredibly difficult um, operation to conduct when the very people that need to work together need to communicate and they're being ganged. Yeah, sounds like it. And again, we'll, we're going to get into this in a second. But right now, around 40,000 people have been displaced, according to the International Organization for Migration. And what do survivors need the most right now? Well, they, they certainly need more help in terms of aid. We need a solution. Bring machines, bring equipment. We are using our hands with hammers and simple equipment. This is a disaster. Please bring equipment. More people. People are in need. This is a bad situation. Where will I live? I mean, you know, there is this kind of pat yourself on the back approach to the Libyan authorities who are saying the aid situation is good there, we don't need anything. What is your feeling when you view this? It's destiny, this Libyan minister tells me. There are videos circulating on social media today of residents of Dadna pointing their phone at streets they live in and finding just heaps of clothes disorganized on the floor, finding children mm. ravaging through them to try to find something that fits. Uh, there are reports of homes that have been uh, collapsing in the aftermath of this and people without shelter and without access to water and sanitation because the water system is destroyed. And so the, there's a major issue with infectious diseases. Right. They just they desperately need expertise uh, that, that can continue to work on search and rescue efforts. But what I think they really need is supply chain management. I mean, the city is isolated. The roads around it are so, so bad that there was a massive car accident between uh, the Greek uh, international team that had arrived in a Libyan family, and it's killed five people and injured seven more. So there is a real issue with the roads around it. They need to be able to get a very agile supply line that changes according to the needs on the ground. Yeah, they desperately need translators. They just need more of the expertise that they don't have on the ground. But but when you take a level a step up, the international community, which the UN was was locked behind red tape for five days, they need to take control of this of this operation because. There is a rescue part, there is a relief part, and then there's a reconstruction part. And right now, the rescue part has been gaffed by the local authorities. Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talked to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a bit about the context in which this happened. This is a major natural disaster, but experts say that it was made much worse by infrastructure that was already falling apart and an inadequate warning system, among other things. What do you think could have been done to avoid the level of devastation that we ended up seeing? If we start in the, in the days leading up to this, 
meteorologists had warned for 72 hours that there was going to be uh, an extreme weather incident that the rainfall would be much higher um than you know than Denna had ever experienced in the eastern libya had ever experienced logistically Denna is uh, south of a lot of the valleys where most of the rainfall would would end up flowing into these two dams the dams were not monitored to be able to understand whether or not the rainfall and the level of those dams was getting dangerously high. We had warned the authorities since last week, no, for years, that the dam had cracks and needs to be maintained. We said it and nobody listened to us. And now the whole of Derna is flooded. Given that they had failed to monitor it, given that they had been disputed claims now of partial evacuations, they warned them and said in maybe two neighbourhoods, and said leave because of the rain. They didn't say leave mm. because of the dam. But on the fateful night of September 10th, in the hours ahead of that disaster, the Libyan National Army's security director in Dedna called for a lockdown. And so countless people were locked inside their homes. Residents that I speak to in Dedna have, have corroborated this. Many of those that have even heard that there were um, calls for them to leave had said, in 2018, you forced us from our homes with guns. If you knew the threat was that dangerous, why didn't you tell us? And why didn't you force us from our homes? Because we wouldn't be looking at up to 25,000 dead if they had done a proper evacuation plan. But there is a structural issue to the way in which governance is conducted in that part of the country, and particularly mm-hmm. across eastern Libya. There is a there is a, a disastrous relationship between the governor and the governed. Dissent is silenced at all parts. The intelligence and monitoring is not on the dams. It's on the people themselves to gag them and muzzle them from speaking about the issues that they face. Mustafa Trabelsi, a famous poet from Dedna, went to the Dedna Art House and, uh, and Culture House and gave a poem about the neglect, the corruption, and the problems that Dedna would face specifically from this dam. I mean, it's an indictment of the political class in eastern Libya that, I should remind you, you know, had blocked local municipal elections so there was a real disastrous issue between of that relationship between the governor and the governed. Yeah. Maybe let's just go back. If you could just explain this in the simplest terms, what do you think we need to understand about the political struggle that's been fought in Libya since 2011 when Muammar Gaddafi was, was ousted and, and a NATO military intervention and then killed? It was Muammar Gaddafi, Obama said, who was the main reason for war. He was about to launch a massacre of his own people. It was not in our national interest to let, let that happen. The questions about Libya keep coming. Who are these rebels? Are they really pro-democracy? Could Libya's civil war drag that country into Somalia-style chaos? There is Gaddafi, dazed, gravely wounded, but still alive, dragged through the streets after his convoy was bombed, and he was shot. We came. We saw, he died. <laughs> but the new Western-backed government proved incapable of uniting Libya. And in the end, the strong man's death led to chaos. What's happened since then, and um, who are the two different governments that have, have come to power? Well, in 2011, as you said, there was a revolution. They overthrew Muammar al-Gaddafi with NATO support. There was national elections that came out in July 2012. The electorate turned up for those elections, hugely popular. I think it was a sign that Libyans had wanted and desired this change for a long time. I am celebrating today. I always prayed to God to give me the chance to experience this day. He's 82 years old. The last time he voted was when Libya was a monarchy before Colonel Muammar Gaddafi came to power in 1969. 
I'm very happy. This is freedom. There was an elected government. There was um, many, many challenges on the on the ground at that time, including the challenge of you know governance and challenge of repairing and rebuilding the country after decades of neglect. Um, but there was a functioning political movement. There was a peaceful exchange of power. And in 2014, uh, Khalifa Haftar, a dual American Libyan citizen who came to notoriety in 1969 for launching a coup alongside Muhammad al-Gaddafi, but came back in 2011 to try to aid the revolution, launched his first of several coups um, since 2014. So he tried to overthrow the government in the east of Libya, sided with the new parliament's chief, Agela Saleh, who was elected in 2014. And then since then, Libya has been divided between rival administrations and rival governments. But to be, make it very simple, these two rival factions, irrespective of their names and how they change, they're very well known to Libyans, known as being either vastly corrupt and incapable as they are in Western Libya, war criminals as they have been and investigated by the ICC uh, in Eastern Libya. And in Southern Libya last year, we saw the return, or a year and a half ago, we saw the return of Muhammad Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, backed by Russia, as is Khalifa Haftar, and calling for a return to the former regime that neglected those very dams since 1982. So it's a really nasty testimony to the fact that none of these individuals that are in charge of Libya or have major influence right now in Libya because of their guns came to Libya through the ballot box. Libyans themselves have been starved from a voice of choosing who represents them. So we've come to this kind of weird dichotomy where we say, well, Eastern Libyans want this and Western Libyans want that, and they're divided. It's not true. I mean, if you look at the videos emerging from the first hours after the disaster in Dedna, you could find vehicles coming from west of Libya, east of Libya, south of Libya. Libyans haven't been divided, but their political class has created this illusion of division. zoom in on the dams that you mentioned, the two dams that were protecting Libya's Mediterranean coast that ended up collapsing, which resulted to water entering the city and wiping away huge chunks of it. Um, It was known for years that they were in danger and that they needed repairs. So why hadn't they been repaired? What led to that? Well, Derna is situated geographically, but also politically in the marginalized part of the country. Um, I mean, excessively marginalized for its resistance against authoritarianism. Um, Muhammad al-Gaddafi built those dams in 1977 and then stopped giving a damn, literally and figuratively, about the people of eastern Libya unless he was trying to crush dissent. So in the years that have passed since the revolution, these political divisions, institutional divisions mean that when they reconcile between them, they start divvying up budgets. They divvy up national budgets, billions and billions of dollars that end up either getting spent or, or put through kickbacks. There was a Turkish company that was supposed to be contracted to rebuild that dam or to maintain part mm-hmm. of that dam. Two million dollars were allocated. They were never spent by the authorities in eastern Libya who had opposed Turkey's intervention in 2020 when they brought in the rival side, Russia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates until they all figured out their geopolitics. But the 2 million euros that could have been spent could have possibly saved the lives of eleven to 25,000 people as we know it. Mm. And how have the Eastern and Western governments responded to critics who say that it was their political failures that caused so many people to die? In a nutshell, they're calling for Libyans to stop being seditious, to stop 
uh, creating political fissures and division in Libya. I mean, it's it's like they're gaslighting the Libyan population. Uh, mm. Any critical voice in eastern Libya, vloggers, for example, in the town of Sous, like Jamal al-Gmati, were, uh, were arrested uh, and detained by the internal security apparatus. You have protests that are emerging literally right now. There are plainclothes police officers that are moving around them. It's not only this east-west divide, which is causing a lot of problems for Libyans, and they're all unified against it, but it's also the socio-political conditions and the securitization of the field in eastern Libya. I'm getting reports from journalists that they're being blocked from entering today. I spoke to one several minutes ago that said that they're they're being barred from going to the protests themselves to be mm. able to speak to anyone. So there is a, a, a very significant attempt on the part of the Libyan National Army to suffocate the kind of dissent that will see them be camouflaged and just make sure that it looks like chaos on the other side. Can I can I ask, have you been personally affected by this? Do you have friends and family in the area? Um, I, I was curious about how this has affected you. I've been affected by that. I honestly don't feel comfortable speaking about um, That's okay. people that I, I love and I miss when all of us are uh, all of us have faced this disaster. Libyans are a really close knit population. Uh, they've you know we we talk about it as if it's a distant tribal divided uh, society. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's not that way entirely at all. People people from all walks of life are affected by this. Um, you know it's. I don't. I don't feel. It's difficult to put it into words. When we look at Western societies, you know, we feel American. We feel British. I'm also. I'm also British myself. I wear two hats. When anyone mm-hmm. is hurt in the UK, anyone is hurt in the West. I feel their pain. I feel that as a you know, as a son of someone. I feel it as a brother of someone. You know, and I feel the same way about uh, everyone that has been affected in Dedna, irrespective of my my own family there, my own friends there. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone in Libya has been affected. Yeah. Yeah. And before we say goodbye, uh, as Libyans face long and short term consequences of this disaster, what's your message for Libya's two governments right now? Step aside. In fact, my message goes further than that to the international community that has propped them up, that has funded them with weapons, has given them money from across the world, that has given them a shield from any kind of diplomatic scrutiny at the level of the U.N., at every single structural point, the international community has failed to maintain their own responsibility. And it, and it should be remembered, they gave themselves that responsibility in 2011 when they started the entire operation with UN 1973, the responsibility to protect. That started this episode and Libyans wanted it in 2011, but they desperately need it now from the international community's new friends, the unaccountable, unelected, filthy rich criminally negligent and incompetent authorities across the country. Okay. Thank you so much for for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it as well. Cheers. All right. That's all for today. I'm Tamara Kandaker. Thank you for listening. And FrontBurner will be back tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.